This episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is brought to you by OWC and Jay-Z Microphones. So get ready to rock. If you send me a mix and it already has an L1, L2, L3, you know, whatever you're you're mixing through to estimate what I'm going to do to it, chances are, you know, you have limited my options greatly. Really, things should only be peak limited once. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and used Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac, the speed to create, the capacity to dream. Now find out how awesome your studio can be at OWC. This episode is sponsored by Jay-Z Microphones with a unique Golden Drop capsule design. The Vintage Series V67 and V11 microphones offer Class A discrete amplifier circuitry, extremely low self-noise, and advanced built-in shock mount technology to bring a rich, warm sound to your studio with crisp clarity and detail that will make you wish that you had discovered these mics a whole lot sooner. Go to jayzmic.com or click the link in the show notes below and use the limited time coupon ROCKS Star right now to get 50% off their vintage series microphones. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Andy Vandette, a mastering engineer who started his career interning at the legendary MasterDisc under Bob Ludwig. After completing his degree in Tonemeister studies, he was hired full-time, and during the CDs explosion, he spent time with other mastering luminaries like Tony Dossi, Howie Weinberg, Greg Fulginiti, Greg Calby, and Vlado Meller. He learned more than just how to master and cut vinyl. He observed their perspectives on processing and musicality, and by the time the MFIT, which is mastered for iTunes standard, was introduced, Andy had been chief engineer for 14 years and had mastered classic albums from the Beastie Boys, Uncle Cracker, Whitney Houston, David Bowie, Rush, Deep Purple, Porcupine Tree, Dream Theater, and many more. During the past five years at Engine Room Audio in New York City, he has continued that success with charting and award-winning projects from Seven Dust, Snotam Quar, Headstones, Big Wreck, Devin Townsend, Matthew Good, Hands Like Houses, Wiz Khalifa, Devour the Day, Thank You Scientist, and plenty of other artists from around the world. Andy has also spoken at audio schools, AES conventions, interviewed for the New York Times, Ars Technica, Sonic Scoop, Music Players, and presented Friends Don't Let Friends Press Bad Vinyl at South by Southwest in 2015. 
A classically trained musician from a musical family, Andy's seen all sides of the music business, whether mastering, recording, on stage with a band, or being a vocalist on jingles for Nickelodeon and 150-plus store chains around the USA. Thank you also to Slough Halliton for making our introduction. Andy and I have been trying to set up this interview for quite some time, and I'm super psyched to have Andy on the show. Please welcome Andy Vandette to Recording Studio Rockstars. Andy, are you ready to rock, dude? Hell yeah. Dude, it's great to have you here. And as I was saying before we rolled, you know, you really did a wonderful job of sending me um, links to your music and your records on YouTube. So Rockstars, a reminder, we have a playlist together in the show notes where I put together a bunch of Andy's records and man, they sound really good. Oh, thank you. Tell us a little more in your own words, you know, briefly how you got, well, maybe not even that briefly. You've had such a great track record of getting started and mastering. Tell us the story of getting interested in this stuff and, you know, the beginning of getting into recording and mastering for you. Well, recording was kind of an outgrowth of, you know, being in a band in high school and, and getting to that age where I had to try to figure out, you know, what was the next step for me. And uh, I had heard that there was a recording program. Um, at the time, you know, we're talking 1981. I was graduating from high school. Dude, I think uh, I, I just got my uh, Atari 2600 at that point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there were only three recording programs on the East Coast. And so one of them was the University of Miami. And let me tell you, my parents were not sending me to the University of Miami. Uh, there was Berkeley. My parents were not sending me to Berkeley. And the third one was a SUNY school, the State University College of New York at Fredonia, an hour south of my parents' house at the time. My brother and my sister both graduated from their music education program and were music teachers. My parents had attended that school. So, I mean, it was a really easy sell to my parents. Hey, you know, I'm going to go to uh, this Fredonia place and uh, I'm going to attend the recording program. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I was in a band, I was writing songs. So I, I, I had this dream that, you know, maybe I could record an album's worth of material and, uh, you know, maybe get a, a record deal or maybe hook up with other musicians who were like-minded. And uh, really, from the musician angle, I didn't really think much about uh, sound recording other than, yeah, you know, I, I enjoyed things that had lights and buttons and mm -hmm. pushing faders and, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, I was young. I was very stupid. Um, so I, I went there and did three years and noticed that the other students around me had been doing internships. And I had a dream. Uh, I wanted to do my internship at a studio called Boogie Hotel. <laughs> it had been nice. owned by Foghat uh, out in lovely Port Jefferson, Long Island. And so I had the opportunity to go to the Audio Engineering Society convention in New York City uh, to meet Bob Ludwig, who was one of the investors in that studio. And, uh, you know, if you've ever, if you've wow. never met Bob, he's, he's just an incredible guy. And I he had is. never experienced anything. He's, like Bob he's, Ludwig. He's kind of like the Santa Claus of making records. <laughs> he, he sent us a letter for a record that he had mastered, and it really felt like Santa had written back to us. <laughs> well, I don't know if I've ever thought of him as Santa, but, you know, uh, being young and stupid and, and inexperienced, coming out and meeting him. And here's a guy who's got two 
Neumann cutting lathes in his room. He's cutting, you know, dual cutting. He's he's set up to cut two lacquers at a time from the original analog master. Remember, 1981, digital was not a thing yet. Yeah. Uh, the F1 format had come out. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there were like the Soundstream and the 3M machines, but they, you know, re- CDs weren't really in anyone's uh, 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 target yet. And yeah. um, so here's a guy who's making changes between songs, cutting sides, two leckers at a time, taking phone calls. And while he's talking to me, I just felt like there was this incredible focus. Uh, on me while all this stuff is going on. And at the end of our conversation, you know, he said, well, yeah, Andy, you know, I can probably make some calls and you can probably do your internship at Boogie Hotel. But why don't you want to do your internship here? And we were at MasterDisc. Hmm. Uh, And, you know, really, my, my, my heart just melted. Um, you know, <laughs> oh, my God, Bob Ludwig wants me to be in the tape library for a summer. I, you know, I, I can't turn that down. So we kind of worked out um, a dual internship program where I was supposed to do Monday through Friday at MasterDisc, and then I would go out to Long Island on the weekends and work at Boogie Hotel. I have to say the Boogie Hotel thing never really happened in any manner, shape, or form. Either they didn't have a session um, or at the time, uh, when they did have sessions, uh, they kind of gained a reputation of, of having technical issues and being so far out on Long Island. It wasn't like being in Manhattan where there was a 24 hour a day Studer parts depot where you could go and, you know, it's three in the morning and get a new capstan. Wow. Um, so it, it never really happened. Uh, and I actually never set foot in the place other than the initial interview. Um, so I had spent my summer uh, at MasterDisc primarily, you know, doing what interns do, running packages. Uh, uh, they had a giant room. Well, no, I wouldn't say a giant room. A, a room full of client masters. And in the pre-internet days... When you had uh, business policies that allowed people to basically show up with cash, get a set of lacquers cut, they get sent to the plant, and now it's three years later. Where do you find this band? Well, you know, today, yes, the internet. I'll just type in the name of the band, and chances are you're going to find them. Um, there was none of that. So I, I picked through their file cabinets and, and returned as many master tapes as I possibly Uh. could. And, you know, that in itself was just a joy to me because here I am weeding out from the master tape library, old masters that were never going to be used again and going, Oh my God, Bob mastered Rick Santers, you know, an obscure <laughs> Canadian that no one south of the border except for me um, had heard of. Uh, and I just found so many masters. There was like the original demo for a band called Cinderella that had gone on to hit it huge. Wow. Um, it was just like a gold mine to me. <laughs> well, and it gave you, uh, you know, an early appreciation for a history of making records at that point. Yes. Yes, and and to not take for granted that that here here is a studio at the top of its game. Um, Howie Weinberg was was had just started doing huge records, 
And uh, Tony Dossi had not, he was mastering at that point, but hadn't really uh, done the, the notable artists that he ended up doing. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and I, you know, not a side note, but uh, summertime in New York, you know, being in a uh, well air conditioned tape library might have been a pretty good place to be as an intern at that point. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yes. Yeah. Sure there were less comfortable internships you could have had. Um, well, very cool. So, um, how long were you there? Now, now you started. That was the beginning of MasterDisc, and then you you ended up being there for fourteen years and and as head engineer. Is that right? Well, well, I mean, it was it was a slow progression. I have to say, by the end of my internship summer, uh, my young stupidity had taken hold again in my mind, and I was like, mastering. Screw that shit. I am a musician, man. I was born to sit behind the Neve, program the flying faders, man. That's that's me. And I had heard enough stories from other interns coming back from their internships. um, And some of them had ended up in jingle studios. And they were telling these stories like, uh, you know, I, I showed up and uh, the vocalist didn't show up for the session. So the engineer said, hey, why don't you get out there and you try it? And so I ended up singing on the demo and then the client heard it and they loved it. And so here's this college student getting residual checks. Right. And so I was thinking that, that is me. I was always lead singer, bass player guy in my band's. Um, and no matter how hard and uh, a course we tried to sound, people would uh, come up to me after the show and go, "Wow, you guys, you guys just look so happy when you're up there." <laughs> and I'd be like, "That that was my best sneer. What what are you talking about?" Um, so I, I, you know, I had this uh, happy-go-lucky white boy sound, and I thought I could capitalize on it. And when I first got back to New York. Um, I did connect with a a jingle producer um, who was doing, um, you wouldn't call it uh, for broadcast. It was more in-store broadcasting networks. And uh, we did have some shots at uh, at major uh, broadcast kind of spots. And uh, most of them went nowhere. Uh, we did one for TGI Fridays. Ours was kind of... <laughs> that was my favorite uh, place to go as a kid. <laughs> go get the potato skins loaded yeah. with cheese and, and bacon. <laughs> mm, the, the, my favorite food groups. Um, so, you know, they, they, we, ours kind of sounded like Jerry Seinfeld theme, kind of funky, happy. And they went for the one that was like more Michael Bolt and Americana. And uh, so... The last one was for uh, a soft drink that has was bringing uh, being marketed in the United States by the same guy who broke Arizona iced tea, and it was Samba, the taste of Brazil. And uh, nice. we did this spot, and you know we're we're all just elated in in the room, going, "Wow, you know this is the first time we actually have the contract. This isn't a demo." We actually have the spot, the producer, the writer, you know, he had the contract. And so, you know, I'm seeing these uh, residual checks in the sky. And uh, about six months later, uh, I checked back with him going, what, whatever happened to Samba? And he says, hey, Andy, uh, let me tell you, you know, I had no idea when I first wrote the spot that there are 15 different types of Sambas. And wouldn't you know that the I picked 
one of them that the client didn't like. So right off the bat, he, <laughs> he immediately redid the music bed. And then the product test marketed so poorly in the United States that they yanked the whole campaign. So mm. there goes Andy's residual checks out the window, high in the sky, uh, couldn't reach it no matter how high I jumped. But by then I was, you know, I was back at MasterDisc working full time. Uh, they started me as receptionist. And, uh, you know, I really have to thank Bob Ludwig and the manager then, uh, Linda, who said, you know, we got to hire Andy. The owner said, Andy, he's, he's an engineer. He's going to want to get back into the studios. There's no way he's going to sit out there and answer the phone and order lunch. But he's got such a happy voice. It's, a, it's the best person <laughs> to answer the phone. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I didn't, I had no idea of this inner struggle that was going on, but, you know, Bob had uh, said, no, no, we, we hire from within. So, you know, he's done his time as intern. There's a paid position and, uh, Let's see what he does with it. And so for after three months, they took me off the phones and I did the company billing. So every invoice that was generated at MasterDisc for probably the next seven years, wow, um, I did. But it also gave me the opportunity to get in to the studios. I worked for two years with Bob Ludwig's night guy, a guy named Alan Moy, who taught me how to cut vinyl records. And eventually went to bat for me and went to the management and, and the, the other staff and said, this kid's ready. Hey, he can... um, you mentioned night guy and, and I've heard that term used at, um, you know, some like Blackbird studios down here is, uh, maybe, maybe break that down. What is a night guy and, uh, do all studios have night guys or is that sort of, um, something of a, of a, a past industry or is that something that you, you consider when you've got a very successful commercial studio? I would think that a night guy today is vastly different than a night guy back then. Because uh, when I started at MasterDisc, Bob Ludwig was doing two albums a day. And so someone needed to come in at night and be able to accurately read his notes to cut more vinyl parts, whether they be reference acetates or master lacquers that were going to go to the factory for uh, for production. Uh, sometimes there would be some light um, revisions, like you know, make the third song on the A side louder, softer, brighter, duller, you know, whatever. Um, but it was all based on Bob Ludwig's notes and being able to recreate what he had set up during the session and got approved. So uh, I. I was taught the Bob Ludwig shorthand for you know the the, the setup of the gear, mm-hmm. and um, was taught the same best practices that uh, Bob's night guy was taught. Um, today, you know, I, I have had assistant engineers uh, pull up settings, recreate what I did, and then do that one click less bottom or that minor change. Uh, for me, occasionally, um, generally, I do everything myself. You know, it takes a long time to build up trust, yeah, and to know that this person, you know, they've got your career in their hands. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, one of the reasons why starting at the phone and doing the billing is not absurd at all, because it's a, you know, it's it's like interning in the studio 
here, there's, there's an idea. It's like, you know, if you don't really take the lunch order seriously, why would everybody trust <laughs> that you're going to take the actual record seriously? Uh, you know, I, I majorly scored in that uh, when I had first started at MasterDisc full-time, they were involved in uh, cutting Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA. Oh, wow. And over time, every engineer at MasterDisc cut at least one set of lacquers on that project because it was just such an over-the-top hit. There were no CDs. I got I got to keep reminding people uh, that, that everything was vinyl, and every major record required that three sets of lacquers be cut and shipped to three different manufacturers in the United States. So you're talking nine sets of lacquers on a major release because it doesn't make sense to manufacture records in New York and ship them to California right? or to the middle, middle of the country. So you know they had manufacturing set up at uh, West Coast, Central, and East Coast. Um, and that record was just such a, an incredible hit that you know I'm sure MasterDisc was sending uh, lacquers around the world and uh, multiple sets, lacquers, create stampers, which eventually wear out. Yeah, it's unlike um, digital where you just do the job once and now it's just a digital file that can get sent wherever. And, and right. you, you're welcome to correct me on that as soon as you want. But <laughs> just generally speaking, with, with vinyl, you had to keep recreating that master to press more records. Yes, yes. Um, you know, today it seems kind of absurd to me by digital standards that uh, – you could recreate. I mean, I, I have problems some days recalling my own settings as simplistic as they might be um, when I was remastering the Rush catalog. Um, and I knew that, you know, I must take meticulous notes because when I hear this in my car tomorrow morning, I might want to make one small change and I need to get back to where I was before I can make that small change. Yeah. Um, and I would pull up the EQ the next day and the tubes would sound different, or the humidity in the room. Something in a direct blind A-B comparison, I could tell the old print from the new. Wow. Um, even though there was only one dB of EQ on it. Uh, wow, what the hell? So, you know, the thinking that you could actually cut it in a different studio that had exactly the same gear... Um, by today's standards, uh, I can hear the difference between the two Sony CD players that I had. Wow. Uh, switching back and forth between them, you know, have two identical discs, uh, put them in the machines and have a, a switch and a quick changing D to A converter. And I could pick out the difference between the two machines. And, and I would do go to great lengths to try to fool myself because I, it wasn't a a digital AES router, it was actual cables. And so I would like haphazardly, not paying attention, plug in the cables and not really know which machine was connected to which input. And I would haphazardly switch the disks and I would try to fool myself and eventually I would say, yeah, nope, that's that top machine. Hmm. Um, so uh, every every analog device sounds different on different days. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about that too, because 
often we hear people make arguments that like, oh, you can't really hear the difference between this and that. And I've been, I've heard all kinds of differences that other people don't believe I've, I could hear. <laughs> and, and, um, and I wonder if sometimes, uh, you know, part of it is training ourselves to really be able to hear those differences as well. Um, but anyway, it's just, that's a whole nother topic, but it's, it's good to be reminded, um, you know, how, how much of a difference there can be in the slightest changes between things. This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can go to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level. And you can start right now with my free introduction to mixing course, Mix Master Bundle. This course will show you how to get pro-sounding mixes from your home studio with free and stock plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is that these mixing techniques will work for you in any DAW, whether you are in Logic, Cubase, PreSonus Studio One, Reaper, or anything you can think of. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix masterbundle.com to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Now, what about, um, you know, pulling up digital files? Do you run into that just simply reopening a digital session sometimes? Is there stuff we need to be aware of where there's differences that we didn't expect? Um, you should always be looking for, for these uh, differences that shouldn't exist. And the ones that I trust, you know, I, I have pretty well taken the ones that failed the test out of my digital workflow. Um, you know, it's part of the reason I use the workstation that I use for the things that I use it for. Um, and there are workstation things that I can't do within my primary workstation, and I, you know, have to go to a secondary workstation. Well, I mean, I guess... Uh, uh, your point, if if I'm understanding it too, is that you know here we we just take for granted things like I'm going to open my Pro Tools session with a thousand plugins in it, <laughs> and it's going to sound exactly like it did yesterday. And um, theoretically, perhaps it should, but boy, is there a lot of math going on that you're you're relying on for that kind of stuff. And um, you know we do run into uh, things getting updated, you know, day to day or week to week or whatever, and that stuff can sneak in. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of opportunity for things to change, and I guess it's good to be able to trust your ears. I try as much as possible to never leave rendering for the future. So if there is a you know half dB tweak uh, on one of the tracks, I'm going to print it so that really my workstation, when it's coming down to making a production master, is really just spitting out two tracks. It's not going to do any processing. Yeah. And that way I don't have to worry about maybe a plugin in the future getting an update and you know 2 years down the line now I'm on a new computer and I go to open up this this setting and well what do you know it doesn't find the old version of the plugin. Yeah. That's happened to me plenty of times. Uh, yeah. It's it's <laughs> um it's a long slow learning process to train myself to just, you know, commit uh, any it's built into pro tools. Now. I mean, obviously I, I'm talking about pro tools. Most of our listeners do use pro tools, although, um, you know, the rockstars also use all the other DAWs as well. Um, and you know, the ability to just be able to commit stuff and have just a series of mono and stereo tracks that are mixing together is 
a pretty awesome way to avoid some of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I could get away with it in the multi-track world, but in the stereo world, or even the surround world, um, it's definitely the way to go. So I like to ask guests to share an inspirational quote to kick us off. You've obviously worked with a lot of great mentors. Um, do you have anything that you want to uh, share that kind of gets you excited about hitting the studio? Uh, well, I don't know if it, if it if it gets me excited to work in the studio, um, but you know, they are words to live by. And uh, I have many. Um, the first would be uh, one that I'm sure you've heard a million times before, less is more. Yeah. Because every gig I have ever gotten because another mastering engineer uh, gave results that the uh, a client didn't like, it was generally because they over-affected a mix. Mm. And I have to say, of all the gigs that I might have lost over the years... And, you know, I'm very lucky that that has been very few, but those were because I over-affected a mix. You have to understand that by the time somebody sends a mix for mastering, somebody thinks it's pretty good. Yeah. And so for me to, you know, get in there, it's really easy for a mastering engineer to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to kill this one. This is, you know, I'm going to pump up the bottom. I'm going to make sure everything's in your face all the time. And, and. Sometimes you come up with a with a client that that's not the way to go. That they have already put it uh, enough in your face. Well, and you know, I, I certainly go from mixing to mastering with you know fingers crossed that the mastering engineer is going to make it sound better than you know. Like I, a lot of times, I might feel like I took it as far as I could go, and I'm like, you know, I've got that artistic sense of self doubt, confidence mixed with self doubt, but. But everybody's worked hard on some aspect of it and feels like, well, this is the correct attitude or balance or character. Um, and if that gets changed, then sure sure enough, I think people quickly go like, oh, man, somehow you got rid of that thing that was good about it. Um, so what, what helps you navigate the process of working with a client where you don't accidentally you know, delete what was good about it? <laughs> well, you know, just going into it with the mindset that something is something is good about this. And uh, I would say today, uh, the norm is uh, I end up doing one track ahead of the record. And, you know, I like that because it gives me the opportunity to feel out a client and, you know, how numb to compression are they? Yeah. Uh and and to work with them and and I can usually give them uh, I mean sometimes there is one clear winner in my own shootouts when I'm running through various pieces of gear if I hear something that's really good I'm gonna I'm gonna render it why you know why labor it just throw it down on the hard drive and then do a really good a B comparison at the end and if you get a couple things that are really good um send them to the client and say, hey, you know, here's a couple things that I heard that I really liked. Uh, EQ1 sounds more like the master. EQ2 sounds more pushed. Yeah. You're and, empowering the artist to make choices as well. Sure, sure. 
um, and, and feel feel them out. Um, a lot of times, if they say, "Oh, we've been listening to this quasi mastered version," I will usually say, "Send it to me," because yeah. once again, you know, we're still we're we're not quite out of the loudness wars yet, but just to find out when where where are they in their loudness and compression and EQ kind of uh, uh, mentality. Yeah. And, you know, I think that stuff also informs you about, you know, how, how they're listening to it back. I mean, people listen on so many different systems and in different formats and different loudnesses, I find, can make things sound better and worse in different places. And they're in the environment in which they are listening. If they are going to listen purely on a laptop and earbuds, you're going to get a lot different feedback from someone who has, you know, a giant sub um, and are listening to it on more of like a home theater kind of setup. Mm -hmm. Now, theoretically, mastered stuff is supposed to travel well, which is, you know, part of our part of our gig. We'll we'll talk about that more for sure. Um, so can you share also a story about an important failure for you? I mean, were there any times where that process didn't go so good, um, you know, but it turned out to be a great learning experience? Um, yes. Um, I always, uh, or I, I like to say, what was the difference between me being chief engineer, um, uh, compared to someone like Howie Weinberg, who has so many gold and platinum records, he could basically replace the the aluminum siding on my house with, with gold and <laughs> platinum records. Uh, you know, why wasn't he chief engineer? And, and I like to say it's because I understand the definition of two words, always and never. Because if you always check your uh, track starts on a CD master, you will never send out a master that has uh, the mark has moved. And on every workstation I have ever worked on, sometimes a start ID moves. Why? I don't know. Um, if, I, if I knew, then it would never happen. Um, but if you always check your masters, you will never send out a blank one, which I have seen other engineers at the studio do. Um, yeah, I've sent I've sent a client home with a CD that was messed up before, and it's just the worst feeling. It's the, worst. <laughs> uh, the, si- the silent ones, especially. Oh, it's all zeros. Okay, yeah. um, and, and uh, you know, I guess my version would be kind of what you said, which was learning to pop it out. I pop, learn to pop it in the CD player, put on headphones, and quickly just check that each song plays, um, because you know there wouldn't have been enough time to like you know listen through the entire thing for some rough mixes, but at least avoiding sending people home with nothing is a good strategy. Um, I would also say never do something the first time on a pay gig. You know, whether you're using a new workstation, a new plugin, a new, um, the first time through anything is a bitch. And there are things that can happen that you can't foresee because you've never done it before. So to make sure you have a little hands-on time before you actually jump in. Now, you know, I have been caught in all of these. That's why these are my my workflow rules. 
And if, as long as I enforce the rules, I, you know, I live a good life. Things are happy. I have happy clients. It's as soon as I am, uh, don't take the time or didn't have the time to truly do that. That is when I, you know, encounter a failure, a failure, angry clients. Um, and that's not a good way to build clientele. Yeah. Um, you know, the never or, or the uh, never using something for the first time. Uh, it reminds me to mention that, again, in the digital world, there's a lot of first times that are sneaking in on you. Uh, everything's getting updated. You know, there's new revisions of things. And, um, you know, that's another reminder. Uh, you just rock stars, be very, very careful about updating the software or the plugin or whatever, just, you know, and having the session with the client you're working with be the very first time you're seeing if that plugin works like it did yesterday, because <laughs> things do change. Indeed. Um, well, very cool. Um, let's jump in and talk a little bit more about your where you are now. Um, you are joining us from Engine Room, from your control room? Today, I am at my home studio, just oh, like okay, cool. every other engineer on the face of the planet. I, I have a workstation set up at home, and um, everything I do at Engine Room ends up getting reviewed at home. So it actually gets double mastered, I guess you could say, because I'm in a totally separate environment the next day, listening on fresh ears um, with a cup of coffee, hanging out in my underwear. Living life, nice. and uh, you know, hanging out with my cats. Um, you know, I, after thirty years, I don't need to head and tail edit in Manhattan, right? So, uh, having a secondary audio environment to listen to everything is just a, a, a benefit for everyone. I think um, I can do any last-minute changes. Occasionally, I will encounter something that you know causes me to pick up the phone. And have one of the assistants at Engine Room um, go over my notes, and I can just sit there on the phone with them and say, "Okay, do this, do that, do that. Did you do this? Did you compare it to the old? Um, did it match?" Um, I'm a big fan of subtraction, where you take two versions of the same mix, uh, lock them in sample accurate time, and flip the phase of one of them. And you should hear. Nothing. Exactly. <laughs> Less is more in that case, for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, and in the analog world, you know, there there is going to be some some minor variation. But if you're hearing lots of kick drum or lots of low end, you know, you know something's wrong. Yeah. Let me let me clarify that for a sec for the rock stars. So certainly, what um, Andy's talking about is that when you flip the phase on them, you're literally mathematically canceling one version of the mix, or excuse me, one file against the other. And and Andy's talking about two matched files. So if this is meant to be the exact same thing as each other, then flipping the phase would cancel it. If there's slight changes between the two, then flipping the phase would actually reveal what those changes were, kind of, sort of, right? Yes. And a lot of times someone will say, uh, the vocal's too low on this mix, I'm going to send you a vocal up mix. And they end up doing a recall. When it comes in, if you do this comparison, the only thing you should hear is vocal. And only the amount of vocal that was turned up, right? Correct. Correct. Uh, you will hear, you know, reverbs can be kind of random. Yeah. Uh, flangers, choruses. Um, but if you're hearing the snare, you know that something, the snare changed on their end when they did the recall. 
Yeah, that's. I'm glad you brought that up because that, that might be something that a lot of people would scratch their heads about. So there are a lot of plugins that get used. Um, I know I just went straight to plugins, but this is the <laughs> world we live in. Um, they get used on mixes that have moving effects and they might do it differently every time unless you printed that track. So in those cases, yeah, you might take two, you know, quote, identical mixes and flip them and still hear stuff in there, but but that not actually be a problem. Yes. Okay, cool. Can you describe to us, um, let's, let's keep talking about your studio for just a sec. Describe what goes into a mastering studio like Engine Room and your home studio. What are you um, surrounded by? Uh, my home studio is strictly plugs and uh, a set of Meyer HD1s. I've been listening to Meyer HD1s since 1986. So I can pretty much take them with me anywhere uh, and uh, hear and do good billable work. When I first started at Engine Room, although I had checked out the monitors, um, I brought my Meyers in for probably you know, three, four months before I was confident enough that I'd no longer needed them. Um, I have UAD and a whole bunch of iLocks and a whole bunch of plugins, and those travel with me to and from Engine Room because plugins are not evil. It does not have to be I'm an analog guy versus a digital guy. Personally, I like whatever wins the shootout. Right, whatever and sounds best. Yes, and uh, working at Engine Room allows me to create these custom hybrid uh, signal paths. Um, I can't say that I always use the analog, but analog is is an awesome option to have at your fingertips. Well, um, I, I think I said this already uh, since we started the podcast, but I'll say it again. You know, the stuff that you sent for us to listen to. Sure sounds good. So whatever you're doing is is a great combination. Well, you know, I I I would like someone to, you know, send me an email and say, I can tell that this song, this song, and this song were a hundred percent in plugins. Uh this song, this song, and this song are purely analog. Uh I bet you you can't because you know, plugins today, uh, anyone who's got a UAD knows that uh wow. That's some yeah. pretty good sounding stuff, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it doesn't always win the shootout. So the more options you have, the more toys you have, the better. And so the things, the other things that drew me to Engine Room uh, were they have a TubeTech multiband, which is a, a tube unit, mm -hmm. um, and it's you know way different than any digital multiband you're ever going to find out there. Um, I like the Maslick EQ. Um, I like the, the Manly Verimu, and on days I will spend hours switching back and forth between the plug-in and the hardware unit. And some days the plug-in wins, some days uh, the, the analog wins. I think it's all, you know, how, how good are the tubes feeling that day? Oh, fascinating. Um, you know, I think the reminder and the takeaway there, too, is that they're, they're – I don't know if absolute is the right word, but there kind of is an absolute takeaway as far as um, what's better. And it's the human ear. It's always the thing that's that will tell you. If you can train yourself, if you can really learn how to listen, you will uh, be able to, in any moment, choose which one sounds better. Um, 
I don't know if you feel like we need to go into some of the things that will fool you as far as what sounds better. Do you want to do you want to address any of those topics? Um, I don't know if I if I actively know. I know that you know having things, uh, learning how to do a real double blind A B test is essential. If you okay. can't do a real double blind. A-B test, you know, there could be some variable in there that is swaying your, uh, uh, your judgment. Uh, and, of course, the biggest one is level. If yeah. you have even a half dB of level on one example compared to the other, as long as there's no negative artifacts like distortion, um, your ear is always going to pick the louder one. Yes, I like that one. Um, you know, I, I spent... Uh, in the early digital days, um, I was working on a project just cutting together a, a, a flat master for Bob Ludwig with Hugh Padgham. And the label had sent a version of one of the songs. And they said, you know, we heard this version of the mix and we just like it better. And so here I am with the guy that had mixed it. And we are listening back and forth to his mix off of his DAT tape and the version that's coming back from the label. And uh, it probably took us over an hour. And we're listening and listening and going, you know, first time through, you're thinking, wow, you know, the bottom, the bottom just sounds a little more full on this version than the other version. Let, let, let's listen again. And we go back, oh, yeah, but the top is also more open and more, you know, grabs your attention better. Yeah, yeah, I kind of like it. And, you know, third time through, the vocal is really more present on this version than the, than the original mix. Why, why is that? And eventually we just figured that it, it had gone through an analog board and the level got bumped up like a dB. So not so much that you said, well, that one's just louder. Right. It was, but enough that it, it grabbed your ear and you just liked it. So is there a process that we should be aware of of avoiding that mismatch of levels? Is there some, uh, some technique? I am always, you know, now that we all have very exact digital meters in our workstations, there really is no reason to not make sure that things you're comparing are not uh, level matched to a tenth of a dB. And you've got the display right there. Mm-hmm. Why not make sure it's right? And then, and a lot of times, you know, I, I am to this day still fooled as I am creating multiple versions. Um, you know, generally when I'm mastering running down a track, I'm going to try it through my eight to 10 favorite compressors. And the ones that grab my ear, I'm going to print versions of, but I am going to make sure they are level matched. But sometimes as I'm just doing my initial rundown, the one that seems to be the clear and obvious winner loses once it is 100% level matched to uh, the best of my ability. Yeah, That's fascinating. And that's something that I feel like I've heard at times and one of those really eye-opening, ear-opening experiences <laughs> <laughs> when you when you think you had gotten it sounding better and then you do level match and you listen back and you're like, oh, this doesn't sound better. Um, we might talk about that here more in the second half and we'll get into things We'll get into some discussions about the loudness wars and and um, mastering for iTunes and streaming and stuff like that and how that stuff applies. Um, but let's take a break for just a quick sec. Rockstar is a reminder that we have links to what we're talking about in the show notes. Uh, make sure to go check out the YouTube playlist. 
with uh, all the songs that um, Andy sent me. It sounded great, fantastic. If you're listening to this on, on YouTube right now, hit that subscribe button and notification bell too so you can catch more podcast episodes from us. And we'll see you guys in just a minute for the jam session. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your existing Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM install an SSD drive, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock. OWC will help take your studio far into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. If you want to capture every nuance of a great performance in your studio, then you need to start with a microphone that is crafted with great care and attention to detail. Jay-Z Mics in Riga, Latvia designs amazing sounding microphones that are handcrafted with jeweler's precision to bring you incredible detail in your recordings. At the heart of Jay-Z Microphones is the unique Golden Drop capsule design, which uses a lighter, faster diaphragm that delivers great clarity and fidelity while avoiding distracting colorations and distortions. Make sure to check out the Vintage Series V67 and V11 with Class A discrete amplifier circuitry, extremely low self-noise, and advanced built-in shock mount technology to bring a classic, expensive vintage sound to your studio for an affordable price. Jay-Z offers a five-year warranty, free shipping to the U.S., and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Plus, for a limited time, you can use the coupon code ROCKSTAR to get 50% off their Vintage Series microphone. I got one. You're hearing my voice right now on the V67. Wouldn't it feel great to have one of these in your studio? Go to jzmike.com or click the link in the show notes below. Hey, Rockstars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest today is Andy Vandette, joining us from New York from his home studio, mastering great records. We're going to talk more about that. Um, you ready to jam, Andy? Hell yeah. All right, dude. Um, you were describing your home studio setup. You're talking about your monitors. You were also talking about engine room audio. Um, what about the monitoring that you would work on at engine room? Is it sort of like something bigger and fancier than what we have in our home listening environments? Oh, yes. Um, they have a custom set of Griffin monitors designed for the room that they live in. Um, a a bi-amped setup, dual 15-inch uh, woofers. And then satellites that sit up above. Um, yeah, great imaging. You know, when I when I went there, when I was looking for a new home, um, I sat down with my stack of favorite CDs and said, "Yeah, you know, I I could do work here now." Nice. Um, it was a little more when it actually came time to actually do it. I I did count on my crutch my HD1s to verify that what I was hearing uh, was what I was hearing. Yeah. Um, 
let's see. What do I want to ask you about the uh, the the Griffin monitors, the dual woofers? Uh, what? Why is well? First of all, what what is the experience if if it's a great system and you're saying yes, this is this works for me? What kind of things might you be listening for? I guess the the full range. Um, some speakers, uh, you know, have have a tighter bottom, but I need to know what is down in that twenty to forty hertz range. If you have a lot of the mixes I receive. The mix engineer obviously didn't have any sense whatsoever of what was going on between 20 and 40, the bottom octave. And if you if you use too much of your energy uh, misfocused, you're never going to be able to get the punch out of the kick drum that you're going to want. And it's going to bottom out systems when you crank it up, that's going to start making the woofer belch and try to fly across the room way too early. Um, people mix on these Yamaha NS10s. Maybe you've heard of them. I might be looking uh, at a pair right now. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, so if you're mixing on Yamaha NS10s, uh, you've got some voodoo in you that I do not have because they do not have an accurate low end and it's really easy if you're not experienced um to misfocus your 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 low frequencies you know i i have an audio mentor i i feel like my mastering experience is just this narrow vision small slice of the grand audio world and so when things don't fit in to my audio world um i go to a guy named paul special who uh, comes from the same hometown as I do, and he was the only person I knew in New York when I first got here. And he came up the ranks through the Record Plant Studios as I was coming up the ranks at MasterDisc. And so whenever I have... Uh, and and he, his uh, experience in the audio industry is vast compared to my own. Um, he currently does the on-air mix for Good Morning America for their musical guests. Nice. Um, as well as, you know, he he uh, recorded a Jeff Beck Les Paul tribute record that won a Grammy. Um, uh, he's just all over the place. He, everything that I don't know, Paul knows. And so well, I go to him. He's got a cool name, Paul Special. You get <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I go to Paul and I say, Paul, how is it that you can go into any studio in New York and get a great mix? On Yamaha NS10s, how does that work? Because, you know, I am 99% in the same audio space that I know like the back of my hand. And if I was to walk into some other mastering guy's room, chances are I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to be struggling for a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and he goes, well, you know, I've learned that uh, you can't count on the sound, but I've learned what good low end feels like. I put my hand on the cone. Mm -hmm. and uh, wow what what a what a great idea i never would have thought of that i remember seeing tom lord algae do that when we were fixing oh that. yeah i know i name drop him a lot on the show but <laughs> he's the first person i watched reach up and put his hand on the speakers uh on ns10s and then i started doing that and now it's just like force of habit i'm i'm putting my hand and my knee on the, you know, the, the car door <laughs> to feel the low end. I go and put my hand on the back wall. It's just, 
I don't know. I can't describe what I'm doing with it, but it's like, it's just, it's like a process of being in touch with the sound on an extra level, I guess. No, whatever works for you, but why not mix on Yamaha uh, NS10s with a sub? Well, I do have a sub. Mm, okay. I do have a sub. And I think the tricky thing, of course, is knowing, well, where does that, how to set the sub level so that it's appropriate. And I have, um, you know, at one point we had smart software in here and we, me and my intern were figuring it out, you know, and trying to shoot it out. And sure enough, just even the act of trying to get them to sound better, it all sounded a lot better when we were done. Um, and then more recently, I've been using the Sonarworks Reference 4 software and that, that again, these are EQ tricks to try and compensate for what's not quite right with the system. Mm-hmm. But um, but it really is helpful, and it's for me when I when I did that and I put the Sonarworks EQ on there, it just highlighted how messed up my bass and kick were sounding, and made it easier for me to go. Oh, I still need to I need to correct that. Yeah, that's helpful. But anyway, um, okay. So uh, NS tens don't have a lot of low end. Feeling the low end is helpful. Um, what about you know, when you're working on your big system there, uh, you know, you talked about dual woofers. Is there anything you, any comments you want to make about the importance of dual woofers on a, on a mixed system? Can you have one woofer and can that still be, or no, you said, sorry, you said dual woofers. Did you mean dual subs? Yeah. Yeah. Dual subs. Yeah. Yeah. Is it important to have dual subs? Can, can you have one sub and that still be helpful? I would think that from a, just a theoretical audio uh, aspect of it that having dual subs is probably a bad idea, but every system I've ever worked on has had that. Yeah. Well, I know that um, I, I've also talked to some great studio designers here, and Carl Tatz is one of them, and he really swears by dual subs, and I've heard his systems, and they sound incredible. So um, for me, the the experience of listening on really high-end monitors is sitting there and all of a sudden the whole sound and image becomes very three-dimensional and the low end is sort of feels like it's your speakers are made out of granite instead mm-hmm. of paper, you know? Yes. Um, I call I, that seeing God. I turned on the system <laughs> and I saw God. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, actually now, since you're saying seeing God and, and I know you've done a lot of heavy, heavy records, let's talk about some, some of that. Um, uh, do you have any stories you want to share about, you know, big, loud, heavy rock bands with distorted guitars that were a lot of fun for you to master? <laughs> fun? Hmm. Well, <laughs> uh, well, you know, I do have a lot of records that were a lot of fun, but, you know, the fun ones don't stick out in your mind like the ones that maybe weren't so fun. Um, and I'll share one of those really quick. I, I had the opportunity to work with a mega producer uh, a mega producer that a couple of my clients had been trying to match me up with forever. And so here I finally got the opportunity to work with this mega producer. Um, they needed the single ahead of time, which is, you know, like I was talking about, great. I get to feel out how they like uh, their music mastered. And the single was mastered and approved and was done. But the day that he showed up for the attended mastering session, he said, you know, Andy, every time a kid comes up to me and says, hey, you know, you got to hear this. This is, you know, this is awesome. You must hear this. 
they're going to play it for me on Apple earbuds or a laptop speaker. So I want to make this record sound full range coming from a laptop or earbuds. Wow. And I said, oh, okay. Um, so I switched off my big monitors and mastered the record on Yamaha and S10s and laptop speakers. And uh, the results of which I cannot listen to in my car. Because <laughs> it, it's just, you know, well, I could, you know, readjust the entire settings. But just being able to go from CD to CD or playlist to playlist um, it just comes on. I, it could never be played in a club, and it was a very guitar-oriented uh, rock record. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, pre-emphasizing that much low end onto a signal or onto a, a mix is just not the best idea. Now, you know, I, I, I did have the luck to get matched up with Stephen Wilson of Porcupine Tree. And uh, he came in with a big stack of analog tape, and I got to put up uh, the track called Blackest Eyes, which is on the playlist. Um, And I hit play, and in my mind, I was like, oh, today is going to be a good day. Today is going to be one of those days where I get to choose what dB on what equalizer I am going to use. uh, Tim Palmer is just an incredible mix engineer, and you know we worked our way through the record, uh, and it's it it still is one of my favorite records of all time. I I, I hear the opening of Blackest Eyes, and really I, I still get like shivers down my spine. It's it's just a a wonderful rock moment. Yeah, that record sounds great. That record, uh, you know, I like to talk about that record because that record is the way records used to be made. You know, the band gets signed to a big label. They get to record it in a name studio with a name engineer. It gets mixed. Oh, and the players, of course, are great. And then it gets mixed by a real mix guy and sent on to, to you know, a, a mastering guy like me. Uh, compared to the next record from Porcupine Tree, um, which one is that? That one was uh, Deadwing. And, you know, Deadwing is the way records are made now, where mm-hmm. the, the guitarist, who's, you know, is definitely no slouch, Stephen's great, uh, but, you know, recorded himself, felt that he wasn't getting uh, mixes as good at the big name studio as he was at home. So he ended up mixing it himself. And uh, at that time, I said, well, if you're going to mix it yourself and you're going to mix it in the box, then the way we should do it is get an analog summing amp, break it out into various subgroups, and then stick it through a nice analog summing amp to mush it all to stereo. Mm-hmm. And he said, that sounds great. I'll send you my Mac. Make sure it all works when I get there. Um, we did do a day of just uh, it open up the door to tweaking the mixes in mastering. Um, and some of the kick drums had been, uh, layered very thick. Mm-hmm. And, uh, while I wanted it to be its own musical moment and its own sound for its own album, I knew that sooner or later people were going to compare it to the previous record. And so as soon as I did that, um, I was thinking, wow, you know, this, this needs to be 
addressed. And because Stephen was there and we got to work work through it all, um, you know, I think it came out great. And he said that the changes that we made to the stereo mix held true for the surround mixes as well. Nice. Um, well, I'm I'm listening to you talk about you know uh, mixing in different environments, mastering. You talked about the kind of the failure of trying to master for laptop speakers and earbuds specifically, you know, without consideration of what it should sound like on on the big monitors. And I feel like that addresses um, or brings up the question of you know how do we consider a big sound system, a car laptop speakers, earbuds. When I listened to your YouTube playlist, it sounded it sounds great to me in the studio on the NS10s with the subwoofer. It sounds great on my Bose speakers, computer speakers up in my office. Um, it sounds great playing off the speaker on my iPhone. Uh, why why is that and you know what is the act of trying to find the the balance that makes all those things come together like that? And, you know, it's really a best fit thing. Although it sounds acceptable on earbuds, I don't believe that any audiophile listens to music on earbuds and expects to get the sense of enjoyment out of it. In fact, you know, I, I don't know of any audiophiles that listen on earbuds. They've all, you know, replaced them with something better than what came with their iPhone. Right. Um, so I personally, I don't master for earbuds. That is an exercise in futility. Okay. And things that sound good on earbuds, I think are less likely to sound good in the other, you know, 75% of uh, audio environments that you're going to hear things at. Um, if it sounds good on earbuds, it's kind of by chance. Um, and because, you know, I have an, enough experience listening on other environments uh, to not make it too extreme in any one area or the other. Yeah. So it really is a balancing act. I would say so. Um, one of the things that really irritates me when I'm mixing is taking a mix that I thought was pretty good and, and I was feeling good about the low end and then I go turn it up in the car and somehow it just, it's kind of there, but it kind of just distorts the whole car stereo. Or mm. I hear this sort of fluttering distortion on the vocal that's being caused by the bass and the kick drum and the low end. Is there any insight into, uh, you know, is there any universal insight into what causes that to happen? Or is that just, you know, just keep working on it, Lidge, till you get it better and better? <laughs> the whole car thing is... Um... You know, what's the difference between uh, any audio environment and a professional audio environment? Well, professional audio environments show us that good mixes sound good and bad mixes sound bad. Right. Um, the car is kind of kind of a little of both, but not entirely one or the other. So I, I can't tell you the number of times that I have listened in my car, because I listen a lot in my car, and I accept it as a valid audio environment, but can sometimes be misleading because it is not a professional audio environment. Sometimes it will make uh, mastering that I'm going to hear again in the studio and go, I, I need to fix that. How did I not hear that in the car? That's amazing. Or the other way, um, 
uh, you know, I'll, I'll uh, freak out by what I hear in the car, only to go back to the studio and you know it's going to cause me to listen to it three other places to verify that no, this is what I would call a car anomaly. Well, now is it a fair perspective to say, okay, I'm going to go listen to some other records off of my iPhone in the car. And those don't seem to have the problem that mine does, and and to conclude that mine still has a problem. That's I would reasonable, say it, isn't it? it? It is reasonable. I would want to listen. You know, if I felt that I had a problem with a mix by listening in the car, I would want to reconfirm it at the studio and a couple other places mm-hmm. to make sure that okay, out of the four environments I've heard it in, the only one that sucks is the car. Right. So that is a car anomaly. Um, but if you start saying, wow, I didn't really hear that in my studio monitors, but I hear it in the car, I hear it on my friend system, and I hear it on my home stereo, then you know that it's your mix. Are there any universal um, low-frequency ranges that seem to get amplified in the car that we might miss in the studio? Or is that um, you know unique for every studio car environment? I'd say you know, it depends on, depends on the car system. Some car systems have subs. Some some do not. I've had a, a whole bunch of different cars over the year, uh, and I really liked my GM Delco stock system uh, because it had the God switch, you know, that loudness control that, mm-hmm. you know, and I knew that with it in that I would wish that it had a hair less top and bottom because it had pushed it a little too hard. And with it out, I should want a little bit more. Um, the next car I had was a, a, a Subaru, and when I heard the stock system, I said, "Well, you know, that's fine. I can I can always replace it." And I'm a mastering engineer. I should be able to learn how to voice uh, mixes for any system, right? Well, um, I I did end up piece by piece replacing it, and it just never became an environment that I could trust. Um, and then the next car was again a Subaru, and I made the dealer, the salesman, sit there in the car with me and listen to ten different CDs to make sure that I didn't want to, you know, upgrade. Uh, yeah, it it had a really nice sound system, but there was like some uh, Harman Kardon system that was I could have uh, bought a car with that in it, and right, I just, right. I didn't feel it was necessary. It's funny, you know, the car salesman's like, don't you want to take it for a test drive? You're like, drive it? I'm just going to park it in the parking lot and listen to records on it. What are you That's talking what about? I did, yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit about um, the online aspect of music. Mastered for iTunes, uh, and then next question will be about YouTube and, you know, why does your playlist sound great when I play it on YouTube back when, you know, people might be inclined to say, Oh, YouTube's not a good place to go listen to music. Um, ta- what is Mastered for iTunes? Let's start there. Oh, Mastered for iTunes is, I think, really took Apple by surprise um, because you know they thought that their uh, encoding algorithm to get it to an AAC was transparent. They had done focus groups and they had done, you know, they had sent out. Uh, versions to mastering engineers and asked them to do double blind tests. And when the Apple representative came to uh, the studio and said, we have yet to have a mastering engineer 
be willing to do an actual double-blind test uh, and pick out the AAC? Uh, I don't know if I believe him or not. Um, but it was basically, uh, to, from my aspect, I, I had just started doing um, the the Rush catalog, and I knew that they were going to be releasing it uh, on iTunes for the first time. And uh, I had seen Vlado going, Vlado Miller was working on a Red Hot Chili Peppers record. And uh, Rick Rubin had called him up and said, these files don't sound anything like my record. Please, hmm. please, please send Apple something to make the files that are going to be sold to the end consumer sound like my record. And so Vlado's assistant um, worked very hard. It was it was a pain in the ass. They had not yet released their toolkit. So in order for a common mortal like us to create an AAC with using the same algorithm that they were going to use, it was all command line driven uh, programming through terminal. And so, of course, if one character in this long string of characters was incorrect, the whole thing was going to crash. And first you needed to convert it to uh, an Apple lossless file and then to an, an AAC file. And um, so I was lucky enough to be able to just, you know, steal that whole technique. And yeah, you know, that that encoder was very uh peculiar like from you, track to track the nuances that would change weren't always the same so uh, terminal is that scary window that pops up on my mac and, <laughs> and makes me think somebody just hacked my computer yes yes <laughs> okay. indeed all right uh the way computers used to be when i was a kid yeah uh, when you would press the return key and a bunch of text would fly up the screen yes um, and it was also green on a black background. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Cool. So you're saying that the so so the master for iTunes is has well, a lot to do with getting that wave file into an AAC file and sounding right. Yeah, fooling their encoder into sounding more like the CD. Okay. Now you know beyond that, it, it all becomes uh, a a budgetary consideration because in a perfect world, guys like me would be able to master for every format imaginable to create an entirely different mastering for the vinyl version, to create a different mastering for the CD than is uh, what is going to be released on streaming and what is going to be sold on iTunes. That's kind of answering that question we were talking about earlier about having it sound good on earbuds or a laptop or stereo or car or, you know, in the mastering room? Well, you don't really know what format is going to end up on what system. I mean, I don't think you're going to end up hearing vinyl on earbuds, but you could. Uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, I think it's likely that you're going to hear an AAC file or some some kind of MP3 on the iPhone on the earbuds, on the iPhone speaker, and through the car stereos at streaming through Bluetooth. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, how how much how much time can you spend creating different versions for every format 
that's going to be released. Dude, we, we've got home studios. We've got our whole life. <laughs> <laughs> but if that involves going back to the analog master, you know, in a, in, in a Manhattan studio, uh, okay, time, is, time is expensive. Maybe not then. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I am still learning about the the pluses and minuses of creating something specifically for streaming, and even streaming services do it all different themselves. Mm-hmm. So, um, going with the attitude of garbage in, garbage out. So, starting with something that sounds really good, I don't think I have ever been the guy that was the loudest out there. Um, I, I like things a good contemporary type loud. Yeah, I, that, I, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but, mm-hmm. but listening again to your YouTube playlist that you sent, I was struck by how every single track, every single track felt just right loud on there and not, not too quiet and not like pumped up like it, was, like it sounded you know, overhyped or anything like that. It really yeah. sounded hi-fi streaming it off of YouTube, and I, I, th- I was struck by that. Generally, if, if something uh, something of mine sounds too loud, overhyped, bit crunchy, it's because that's what my client asked for. Right. Or maybe that's where it came from. Now, um, that does make me want to go to the question, um, you know, what are things that you can really do magic to in mastering, and what are the things that you simply can't fix because of the recording or mix? Ah, good question. Um, I try to tell my people that I have... Lots of processors that can add a nice sense of air, that can DS, um, even if I end up having to, say, go in and spectrally edit uh, four or five strong sibilant S's within a song, or 20, um, because <laughs> a DSer is just going to grab the hi-hat or the snare too much. Yeah. Um, what I don't have is something that's going to compensate for getting the balance between the kick and the bass instrument. If you make your bass instrument too heavy in in the sub and your kick either too low and level or it just doesn't have enough what I call poke, um, there's a good chance that I'm not going to be able to reach in with some kind of magical digital plug-in and get the kind of kick sound out of it that I am looking for. Even if, you know, dynamic cues, I mean, I've tried everything. Um, and when you, do, when you do encounter a mix like that, there's a whole range of plugins that I call forbidden jitsu plugins or forbidden jitsu mastering. Um, you know, the, the, I call them the transient enhancers, um, even like oral enhancers, uh, the, the, the brighteners, um, you know, you get into the, if you get into those, uh, they're kind of like audio crack, you know, once you hear it, you're like, yeah, 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 I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to use this. In fact, why don't I use it on everything? I can stop whenever I want. Uh, and so you, I mean, you really have to be, uh, sure that that's what you want. Um, and chances are, uh, when you find something you like, use less. Turn it down a little yeah. bit more than you think you should. Uh, they do have some downside. It's kind of like put it up to the level you're like, that's good, and then turn it one click down. Yes. 
It's not a bad strategy. Not a bad strategy at all, especially since, well, you know, at the beginning of the program, um, less is more. And, you know, why do, why do I get gigs and lose gigs? Because I over-process. So, uh, I'm, yes. I'm, we don't have to go into this, but my brain is taking me to the question of, does that apply to performance as well? <laughs> I don't know. That's another podcast episode. <laughs> um, okay, so that's fascinating to hear because it, obviously as a mixer, um, you know, working really hard to try and get that the the bass and the kick and the low end to all go together, and you know that that's where the power of a of a rock record particularly is. That's or a pop song, you know, that's where you want to feel it when you turn it up. That's where you want it to be crankable in the car. And uh, I might work really hard on that, but there still might be elements where I'm like, man, I just i I got it to where I could get it. I sure hope that he can make it. You know, take it. You know, turn on the awesome button. <laughs> and mastering, and and I would suggest that uh, on some level, just the things that you might do by sculpting some of the low end EQ and and you know limiting or or bringing up the level of stuff, especially especially when I was mixing before we all had loudness plugins in our DAWs, you know, and just you you already are able to make things way too loud when you're mixing. Um, you know, those are places where I might, I might've gotten it back from you and just been like, Oh, thank God. You know, that sounds, there's the God button. Um, so, so I'm going to throw that back at you and suggest that you do have a God button and maybe you're being hum humble about it. Um, I, you know, I, I only have what everybody else has. I mean, cause I am using a digital limiter at the end of a chain. Um, but I have a superior monitoring environment where I can, I can tell that a, a boost at 40 Hertz versus a boost at 50 hertz or 60 hertz, I can tell the difference. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I totally understand that mix guys are under tremendous pressure to give the client something at CD level. I had a, a guy, uh, someone that uh, I had worked with doing editing work for Howie Weinberg, uh, call me up. His name, I don't know, maybe you've heard of him. His name's Andy Wallace. Okay, and yeah. so like 20 years ago, uh, Andy Wallace called me. I don't know. Maybe he was embarrassed to to call Howie and ask the question. You know, these fucking A and R guys that get my mixes, and they say, Andy, you got to do a recall. I was just comparing this to, you know, the CD, and it, it, it sucks. And I and I tell them, no, 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 that's a great mix. You know, I don't want to change that. Wait until you hear it mastered. Then you're gonna. Then you're gonna. Uh, here, the, the true greatness. No, 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 man, you got to do a recall. This blows. And and so, you know, he was like, Andy, what can I do? And so, you know, I pointed him in the direction of some of the, the boxes, the Make It Louder boxes, the Make It Louder plugins, strictly for client copies. Mm -hmm. And then you send the mastering guy something else. And, and uh, uh, when I get a Chris Lord Algae mix, um, uh, people tend to be critical on him and on his on his compression. I think his mixes sound great, and every mix I get from him hits like minus six. You know, he's done an awesome mix, and he has left it up to the mastering engineer to decide the best way to make it an appropriate loud. That's exactly what I want. If you send me a mix and it already has an L1, L2, L3, you know, your whatever you're your mixing through to estimate what I'm going to do to it, um, 
chances are, you know, you have limited my options greatly. I like to do rides and things. And when you do rides um, and the level goes up and it's already bashing the top of the digital scale, well, that kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up because I know that uh, really things should only be peak limited once. After that, they become what I call digitally fragile. And suddenly, a half dB of EQ, um, it sounds like 2 dB before peak limiting. Fascinating. Um, Also, you mentioned doing rides. Can you you describe what that means in a mastering context? Oh, let me see. Did I put it on my playlist? Down on my playlist at the bottom in the the should-have-been-huge section um, is a song by Tony C. and the Truth called A Little Bit More. And that song came in, and it sounded very linear. It had been compressed already, and the choruses just didn't pop. So that is a comp of two separate passes and uh, the choruses come from a pass that's just 2 dB hotter. So, you know, bam, the, the downbeat of the chorus happens, and, uh, you know, it pops up. And then at the end of the chorus, it, it goes back down. Um, so, you know, wherever, sometimes going into a chorus, if you've already a stereo bus limited your, your, your mix, if it doesn't pop enough, I'm going to make it pop. Um, I I might even ride down the second half of the verse before that occurs. And, you know, sometimes I can do it all by hand and sometimes it requires comping. Same thing with, with low end, like the verses, the sound great, but then when it gets into the chorus, either the low end is either in the way or not present enough. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've got these knobs um, why not, why not twist them? That's so great. I love to hear that. Cause, um, it, it sort of, it just makes me smile to know that at the mastering stage, you would have the same creative, um, investment that you might, if you were mixing it, you know, you're, you're in there, you're not just trying to find one little bit of something but but it's like man if this if this song needs something here let's figure out how to do it so that it's so that the vision comes through right and if you've already maxed out your level and is already you know bashing the top of the digital scale i always say you know you should only uh peak limit one time re-squaring the square waves is never a good idea there's always going to be some kind of artifacting there whether you're conscious of it or not. This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy. Are you ready to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level and make your best record ever? Then visit the Academy to find the course that's right for you. Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Then check out Rockstars of Drums to learn how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a professional Nashville session drummer in a Grammy-winning studio. Or if you are ready to start mastering your own records at home, then check out Rockstars of Mastering, where I walk you through exactly 
exactly how I mastered my own record, Skadoosh, using nothing but plugins in PreSonus Studio One. These techniques would work for you in whichever DAW you are using right now. And if mixing is your focus, then check out my free course, Mix Master Bundle, where I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins in Pro Tools. Plus, you get a look at how I recorded everything in my studio and multi-track downloads to mix in your own studio and even include in your mixing portfolio if you want. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to MixMasterBundle.com to get started for free now and look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. So let me talk for just a moment about how I've recently been mixing, where I, I basically built my mix in Pro Tools and then it all feeds a, a mix bus. And then that mix bus feeds um, sort of a quiet output level at that level. And then it goes through a secondary hot output level so that, um, you know, whether it's right or wrong, I found myself wanting to listen to the hotter one while I was working. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's the one that runs the risk of, of, you know, have, it has limiting on it. I'm not intentionally trying to see any, um, any lights on the meter on the limiter, but, um, but it's, you know, it's probably catching some of those peaks, but it's also when I print it, I print the quieter version and, and the limited version. Do you think that that is an approach that might help, um, you know, many of the rock stars listen to this as they want to figure out how to get their mix right and deliver it to mastering? Or am I, am I only getting part of the equation there? No, no, I think, I think you've got it very good. You know, my problem are the guys that I suggest to them that they send me a mix without the extra level and they complain. Oh no, no, no. That's a, that's an integral part of my sound. Really? Okay. Well, you know, I, if you think you're the master of L1, I, I can't really argue with you. You know, you've, you've made the decision that it's going to be on there. Um, but chances are, I have something that can beat it. But in order for me to even investigate that, I have to have a, a version uh, with years off. If it turns out that you give me both and you turn out to be the god of L1, I'll use it. I, I don't really have a problem. Like I said before, I'm, you know, I'm all about what wins the shootout. And if I, in my blind A-B test, keep picking the version I created with all that extra sauce on it, I, I have no problem. It doesn't happen often. Well, also the the extra sauce that the you know the artist is mixing with, um, which gives the music the right kind of character or whatever, um, you may just have a better way to do that, which I think is what you're saying. And uh, so you may need to back up one step with the quieter version, and and you know work it with your tools to give it that character, but with more. Goodness, I guess is a way to say it. I like yes. to think of that also. Um, I don't know if this is a totally fair analogy, but I think of that like an electric guitar and a guitar amp. Um, an electric guitar direct signal coming out without a guitar amp may not make a whole lot of sense by itself. But if you pick a better amp than the other, you're really going to appreciate that. You're going to notice it. But you you can't take the first guitar amp version and run it through the second guitar amp and get that. You got to go back to the guitar signal, you know, one step. 
It's a little bit of an extreme analogy, but no, maybe, no, I, I, I think it's mean. probably you know probably one of the better analogies of why not to send peak limited mixes for mastering. Okay, cool. Well, well, thank you very much. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit more about getting records to you know avoid uh, sounding harsh. So, you know, a question I wrote down was how how can we make loud in your face records that are still somehow smooth and not harsh. I think that's at the core of what you've been talking about already. Uh, but, you know, you've done a lot of great sounding rock records where they're like, it's, it's the energy is, is loud, but the frequencies aren't tiring my ear. Mm. Well, thank you. Um, and, but how, how do I do that? Yeah, sure. You know, how, do you, how do you do that? <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 it shouldn't, uh, shouldn't hurt my ear either. And, you know, sometimes it does require uh, some DSing. A lot of times people get the track right, but they've just made the, the vocal too sibilant. And it's, you know, t I, I try to brighten up the track a hair to get a little more crack out of the snare yeah. and end up taking people's uh, ears out or making ears bleed. Um, with the S's and, you know, spectral editing has been incredible. I, I can't really say that I use a DSer so much anymore. Um, uh, going in and being able to see, yeah, there's that S and, and I can, uh, spectrally edit the S and make it end right before that, that the crack of the snare. So it has no effect on the snare whatsoever. That's cool. Um, I, you know, for me, spectral editing means RX isotope RX, are there other tools out there as well that get used for that sort of thing? Well, there's a spectral editor built right into uh, my main digital audio workstation, which is Sequoia. Right on. Um, yeah, uh, Sequoia. I've been hearing more about Sequoia, so I'm I'm intrigued. Very intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> everything you know, everything has its pluses and minuses. I w I would love a world where I only needed one workstation. Um. But it is it is not my sole workstation, and if I only had one workstation, I probably wouldn't be um, Sequoia. But the the spectral editing feature built into it is, um, you know, one of the main reasons it is my final cut and chop uh, workstation. Right on. Yeah. In fact, it was Tim Dolbear who was just on the show oh, yeah, right sure. before you who was talking uh, about working in Sequoia. Mm -hmm. Um. Very cool. All right. So, and, and spectral editing gives you this beautiful, beautiful visual sort of cascading look on your screen. It just looks cool to begin with, you know, <laughs> and, and you can see sounds and it's really remarkable. Um, I, I sort of remember when, I don't know if it was the introduction of spectral, spectral editing or if it was when it sort of came across the blogosphere as like, you know, here's this new fun tool. And it was like, you know, take a uh, Van Gogh painting and load it into this this thing, and it'll spit out sound. You know, <laughs> in reverse, <laughs> which was never very useful. <laughs> but actually, spectral editing is, is really cool. And I know if I do stuff like that in Isotope, you use tools that look familiar to you for graphic editing, like lasso tools and and boxes and stuff like that. Um, do you get? Uh, do you have even better tools than that? Do you use paintbrushes and things like that to to adjust spectral editing? No, no. I would say boxes, lassos. Yes. Okay. Cool. Well, groovy. 
Well, I'm going to explore even more. <laughs> um, I, I've mentioned this, uh, I think, recently, but Larry Crane had a great tip when he was on the podcast, um, Larry Crane of Tape Up. He talked about using spectral editing to, um, you know, port over a, a, like a guitar track and you put it over there and then he'd sort of spectral edit out certain resonant frequencies in that guitar if he wanted to and send it back. A, a mm. buzz would be an obvious one, but you know, being able to do that even for just tones that seem to feedback that was sustaining and, and it just sort of seemed to have the wrong fundamental. You could just go adjust it a little and bring it back. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, no, that sounds really cool. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm always intrigued with what the next version of something like Sony Spectral Layers will be able to do. Um, I don't really think it's quite there yet, but you know, if in mastering I could truly extract a kick drum track and uh, roll off the sub that's on the bass guitar and then add back the natural you know kick that actually sounded fine. You know, could be a potential fix in the future for wow. you know one of my biggest mastering problems. But you sure you want to let everybody know about that? <laughs> hey, if someone can show me how they can actually make that work, I have not. You know, in theory, it should, but in actuality, it hasn't worked that well. Right, right. right. I mean, there are um, remarkable tools like Melodyne, for example, that I use regularly in the studio. And they they do pretty fantastic things, but sometimes you know what what I hope might work doesn't quite work to my ear the way the way it theoretically should. Yes, so so I understand what you're saying. Um, let me ask you about mastering a couple of the jazz records that I put in the playlist. So Brian Blade and Adam Holzman, uh, both very cool sounding records, uh, different from each other too. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about stuff you've learned about mastering for jazz, you know, in the context of mastering these rock records and stuff like that. Are there similarities in mastering projects like that, or are there bigger differences? Uh, to me, I see bigger differences, especially you know the the Brian Blade record is just to me such a traditional jazz jazz record, you know, a jazz purist record where I was totally not at all worried about level. There, it is not a record that should be involved in the loudness wars. Right. Now, the, the extreme dynamics, I am not worried at all if a listener has to adjust the volume control while driving in their car at 70 miles an hour. Um, uh, that's not a concern. It, it should be as open and dynamic as humanly possible. Whereas, well, and, and it, that song in the playlist, which one did I put in there? Is um, um, he died fighting? Starts out with a very quiet sort of tom build. Yes, I thought that must have been a real challenge. Somehow, it's like somehow your your master of it just uh, it, it's very quiet there. But if it was my mix, I would have been like, oh crap, I screwed up the mix. But your version of it sounds like, oh, I can really hear how it's this super quiet Tom thing that's building out of nowhere and, and, uh, you know, doesn't have noise on it and sounds cool. Yeah, no, it, it was definitely a, a, had restrained myself because given, you know, the tools you have around you, you want to use them, you want to show change, but the mixes came in and they really sounded good. Yeah. Um, 
And so it was really just a, a matter of giving a great ultra dynamic transfer from the analog masters. How do you know how loud is loud enough for something like that? I have in my mind and on meters what I would call a level window. And on a, a pop or a rock, you know, you kind of know, okay, this is my soft kind of loud, and this is my over-the-top peak kind of loud, and how far apart they can be and should be. And in that world, I have to say, I, I have a mastering Achilles heel that I am contacted by clients and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we, we love the record. Everything sounds great. But, you know, that quiet song is too loud. And even though I know that I have this issue recurring and I'm trying to, while I'm mastering it the first time, hey, Andy, this could be one of those moments Let's make sure we don't make the quiet song too loud. And then I get that call and it's like, oh, oh, crap. Oh, crap. Well, you know, turning things down, that's easy. Um, so, it, you know, in a scale of problems, it's not that, not that big of a problem. But on a jazz record like the Brian Blade, I am looking at the peaks and the peaks are all going to be in that the top range of that level window. But I'm not going to be nearly as conscious or controlling about the bottom edge of that level window. Right. Things you, can just If be, they want to go down and get quiet, right. and it, that's fine. If, if yes. it's musical, that's fine, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, are you a big jazz fan yourself? I, you know, I was I was raised a, a classically trained musician. I, I had to play uh, trombone through my uh, Fredonia College experience. Um, everyone in my family is classically trained musician. My brother was a member of the Buffalo Opera Company before they went bankrupt. Um, so, I mean, I have an I have an appreciation for it. Um, I would probably say the uh, more contemporary forms. To me, there, there, there's a few different camps of jazz. The camp that sounds like three people in three different rooms warming up before a performance. <laughs> you know, the, the kind of randomness and then it all falls together for a little bit. And then, it, you know, that that's not the kind of jazz that I am going to be uh, putting on too often. Um, the stuff that smooth jazz, I like smooth jazz. Um on a Sunday morning. On a Sunday morning, yeah. I mean, it 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 has its its place, and I'm always intrigued with musicality and alternate meters. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I'm more of a rock guy. Nice, nice. Um, I get you know I, the question that popped in my head when you're talking about being classically trained again was wondering whether your ability to read music and sheet music has ever entered the mastering room. But I, I imagine with rock, it probably is never going to happen. Well, yeah. If I do, if and when I get uh, classical recordings, you know, there is more comping going on in a classical recording than a pop vocal track. Mm. Uh, you know, sometimes um, multiple edits per bar, because they know that although it was all done live to two, that comping together a most perfect performance can be the difference between 
being booked uh, the next 10 New Year's Eves or sitting home. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure in that environment to have things sound as slick and perfect as, as any genre of music. That's interesting. I'd heard that about the classical world that like nobody's more demanding about comping than, than classical musicians, you know, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. I think in 35 years, I've actually had to read music twice. Okay. As far as the master. (laughs) There you go. Um, all right, so rock stars, you don't necessarily need to learn how to read music if you want to ma- master, make rock records. <laughs> master, anyway. Yeah, well, it's good if you can count to four. That's true. Yeah, sure. that helps. That helps. If you, you, you do want to know where the one is. The downbeat is important. Yeah, um, n- now that everything is, cl- is performed to a click, um, you know, things have gotten significantly easier. I can, I can remember doing. Uh, uh, edits, rate, trying to do radio edits with stuff that ha- that wasn't performed to a click, or uh, let's say um, I used to do a lot of clean edits and radio edits, uh, um, taking out offensive words from hip hop tracks, mm-hmm. and um, be having to uh, uh, in the days before labels wised up and said you're not getting paid unless you give us an instrumental along with the the main mix um you know now now everyone has an instrumental mix and you can right. just take out the offensive word by cutting in a snippet of the instrumental locked in time but there were in the early days Andy searching the loop before the vocal started and the loop after the vocal ended for just whatever didn't have a vocal over it so that I could do the exact same thing as if I had an instrumental. And, uh, you know, those were some of the most challenging edits of my entire life. Yeah, I can, I can relate. (laughs) Uh, I've, I've searched for, Bits and pieces in other parts of the song, you know, many, and, many, many times. And continually relocking that four bar uh, non vocal phrase over and over and over and over again within a single track. Yeah. Well, um, Andy, let, we're coming to the end here. So let me jump forward to the uh, these sort of jam session questions and, sure. and see, see if we can get through a couple of them really quickly on our way out. Um, when you started out in recording, what do you feel like was holding you back? Well, I thought a lot about that, and really, uh, uh, everyone was incredibly supportive, maybe rather naive getting started, so uh, nothing but myself. Um, I never intended to be a mastering engineer. I always thought I was going to be a you know, musician, vocalist, engineer, producer in a multi-track room, never in the mastering and and it really took me a while to you know get behind that, and um, nobody is going to uh, help you except for yourself. Especially in today's, I started off in in what I'd like to call the "if you build it, they will come" market. Right, right. And you know you put together a great room with great gear and a friendly staff. People people would come to you. Now you know there is there is no one out there trying to promote uh, my my work and, and the recordings that I am 
making other than myself and trying to promote in addition to work is a a constant challenge. And so, you know, I kind of wish that I had gotten that uh, God helps those who help themselves memo um, years earlier in the, if you build it, they will come years. Because I see those that had uh, more self-promotional skills, uh, you know, get much farther ahead. Well, we really appreciate you being on the show with us here. And Rockstar is just, just a reminder and an understanding. This two hours that, that Andy's joined us for this interview is two hours he's not mastering a record at the moment. So that is hugely appreciated. It's great to be here. It's great to have, you know, venues. Now that we have all lost the uh, opportunity to get what I had, which is, you know, standing in the back of a room behind an industry luminary, trying to comp some of his skills, his workflow, his ethics, his, you know, the whole sense of musicality. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest part of my clientele are people who go through recording programs, but didn't have that real world internship that I had. And yeah. Uh, you know, they generally become my most hardcore clientele after an album or two. You know, they know exactly what I want. They've seen the results that can happen. Chances are, you know, the first album, you know, I, I might have suggested a couple changes because uh, at this point I have my name on enough bad sounding records that, you know, if I find that the the, the album was recorded and doesn't require... Uh, booking a st- additional studio time at a specific studio with a specific engineer, and it's all on the guitarist's hard drive. You know, it makes it really easy to 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 feel out clients and say, you know, I I hear a lot of good stuff going on, but why is the vocal so much brighter than the snare, or why is the snare so much brighter than the vocal? You know, there's usually one or two things that really keep a mix from being listenable. Yeah, well, there's always the same answer, which is. I didn't know. <laughs> that's why I had no idea. Um, well, that's cool. And I hear that often that, you know, especially in this day and age with people, you know, working from home studios, like you said, and being able to recall a mix and make changes, um, there's a very, very important feedback loop that can exist between the mastering engineer and the mixer. And that can be part of, you know, backing up a step and getting it right at the source. It's a good option to have. Um, you know. That being said, I can comment for days on uh, the subject of like balance. But what I find separates the ultra-professional from the non-professional in mixing is depth. So when you close your eyes, how deep is that soundstage? Chances yeah. are your favorite mixer it's going to be quite deep. And so, you know, something I'm always intrigued by with you guys is how do you achieve that? Oh, man. I don't know. I listen to your finished <laughs> masters and I try and duplicate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. You know, I, I, I would say listen, 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 listen to everything. Yeah. I'm, I'm amazed. Uh, there are too many bands that are out there. And so when I throw up a mix and I dislike it and... Uh, you know, my friend Paul Special is around. I'm like, Paul, what do you think of this mix? And he'll be like, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. It kind of reminds me of, you know, the second Pixies album 
with a little bit of Bob Dylan mixed in. Nice. Why? Oh, okay. I guess I have to go back and listen some more um, to find the good. Um, how about sharing with the rock stars uh, a recording tip hack or secret sauce, something that would help them on their next record in their studio? Um, if they haven't, they should really invest in the Golden Ears ear training CDs. Oh, yeah. These are the same recordings that uh, I used. Um, a guy named Dave Moulton was the head of the sound recording department at that small school an hour south of Buffalo. And uh, we would get together every week and do some listening before we booked our studio time. And uh, it, those helped me so much. Every single day, I use what I learned. And it just is so good to be able to quantify, let your artist go off and speak in all these you know, weird kind of terms. Oh, I really like the mix, but I wish it could be more green. Right. <laughs> what the fuck do you do with that? Um, you know, it, it really helps you. Okay, I think what he's talking about is, you know, he wants some more earthy warmth. So that's going to be, you know, like a 250, 300 ish range. No, did he just want you to hand him a Benjamin? <laughs> I have not spoken with David in, in many years. Um, but I am still, you know, thankful that he made us do this ear training and just listening to everything that is out there. Um, yeah. Now, do you think that that ear training, for example, it just makes me wonder if stuff like that can even be helpful. Let's say you're listening in your car and you're trying to understand what it's doing better. Mm. You know? I never, I never heard in that environment. Um, so I don't know, but I imagine that yes, it could help you, especially the the later trials that aren't just pure frequency. Right. That, you know, making sure you're noticing what you're supposed to notice will help you define quantitatively the difference between a professional monitoring environment and your car. Um, just out of curiosity, if somebody is going to go check out the golden years and they're going to go listen in their studio, um, what, uh, generally speaking, what kind of time investment might somebody be considering for something like that? Are we talking about many, many hours of repeated um, study? Uh, it probably all depends on how much of that you're getting right. Okay. You know, if you if from the first disc you're you're finding that it's a struggle, you should spend some time and slow down. Yeah. Um, but I would imagine that most people with a little bit of experience could, you know, advance to some of the later trials that are awesome. are more challenging. Awesome. All right. Well, let me jump forward to um, the business question. Um, what advice do you have for the rock stars about? you know, doing, making records as a business, if they want to do this for more than just a hobby, any resources or any tips? Uh, anything that can help you keep it all uh, logical. The less you have to remember, the better. It is a constant struggle for me. I have three different email addresses and some people choose to communicate with me via Facebook rather than an email. And so when I'm sitting there at midnight and I'm trying to recall, now, did he say a little less bass on the third song or the fourth song? How quickly can I retrieve the right information? So I have taken to um, uh, creating just an, an open-ended Word document that has everything. They send me the initial you know, session information with the uh, track listing, 
Um, getting the correct titles out of them is sometimes a struggle because um, <laughs> they don't even know what it is, and the file name doesn't match the working title, which doesn't match uh, doesn't match the final title. Uh, so you know, keeping a running just a big long document in that artist's folders so that you can go back and refer to it and say, oh yeah, well I know they called it this at the beginning, but now they want to call it that for the CD text. You know, it reminds me of when you call uh, tech support somewhere, you call the cell phone company and you're like, you know, we talked six months ago and, and if they have a system where they've got this running list of things you discussed, you always, you know, it's like, oh, that's how they, that's how they know what we talked about six months ago <laughs> and again today. And, yeah. you know, it's a reminder that we need to, you know, take that lesson from, from that industry perhaps for what we do. And, and another takeaway too, and we talked about this recently on the show is that um, I think it's smart that you are uh, taking your system and adapting it to this, the chaotic way that information comes in from the world, as opposed to, trying to uh, put this effort into somehow teaching the world to speak in a more organized <laughs> fashion. Because the truth is, next week you're going to be talking to a different group of chaotic incoming messages. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's smart. I'm also using the to-do list on the Google Calendar quite a bit to you know make sure that uh, whether just initial contacts or actual jobs don't fall through the cracks. Yeah, that's good. And that's a good organizational tip, too, for and, the yeah, show. And available on all devices. So yeah. it's, you know, it's always, uh, whether you're a phone guy, laptop guy, or a, a, a desktop guy, it's available everywhere. Well, and what I appreciate about you sharing your tips, too, is that it's a reminder. You know, we live in this world of, of high tech and online stuff and cloud-based things. And I keep hearing you know, slight variations of how to do stuff from different people, which is a reminder that it's it's like us. It's find your personal way to organize and keep those notes together. And that's what's most important. Go all the way back to Bob Ludwig. He had a shorthand. Mm -hmm. You learned it, and that's what made it work. It didn't have to be the AAS standard for everybody necessarily, although I'm sure there were other parts of it that did become AAS <laughs> standards. But uh, I think that's, that's good advice. Well, let me take us to the final uh, closing question. Um, before we go, and, and I want to thank you again for being here on the show with us. Um, this is hypothetical. You're going to go back and find young Andy Vandette and, and tap yourself on the shoulder and say, listen, dude, I know you want to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day, but here's the, most, uh, the single most important thing you need to know to be able to do that. If you could go back and give yourself that advice, what would you do? Um, it would be... To the, I think I pointed it out before that you know God helps those who helps themselves. That nobody, especially in this market, is going to uh, help you, promote you. You you must find venues, uh, whether you're uh, speaking on a podcast or speaking at a school or you know how are you going to connect with your next client. The the fact that you create great sound. That's a given. That's not really the job. That's that's the that's the fun part. Right. Um, it, it, the job is you're going to run out of friends. You're not always going to be able to record your friends <laughs> uh, and your family. 
So what is going to keep that steady revenue stream because you're going you're gonna to want to have some kind of a normal life, a car payment, a home, a family, and uh, nothing, no one is going to uh, keep going out there and finding you a fresh clientele. You must constantly connect. There was a, um, there was a person on staff when MasterDisc was trying to be a DVD authoring company. And he said once, um, a third of your clientele is already working with someone else. You just haven't found out about it yet. So you're constantly losing 30% of your clientele. And it's totally understandable. Musicians are creative people. They're all looking for that, that killer combination of production and mastering and promotion that's going to push their project to the next level. And if they didn't get it the last time around, even though you did a fine job, everyone raved about the sound of the record, they're still looking for, yeah, yeah, but, but, but you know, this producer says I should use that other guy. Okay, well, you know, they're going to do that. And you can't hold any negative feelings towards them for trying to find their magic combination. Yeah, um, But it does mean that you got to connect with 33% more clientele all the time. It's, it's like the, um, what was it? It was like a, a, a can of cleaner that was sitting in the bathroom one day. I looked over and it just had this thing at the top. It said, clean now cleans 33 and a third percent more things even better and that's what we have to do <laughs> i looked at it i was like i don't even know what that means i think that just means i have to hustle harder <laughs> awesome yes. andy thank you so much for being on recording studio rockstars with us dude. it was well, a super you, pleasure Lynch. hanging out with you and again another, a, a closing shout out thank you to slough halton for um introducing us uh, let the rock stars know how they can find you online. How can they come master their next hit record with you? Oh, sure. Well, I have my, my website is andyvandette.com. Uh, and all over Facebook, there's a, my personal page where you can, you know, see me Christmas morning in uh, robot fuzzy sleep pants, or you can uh, click on like for Andy Vandette mastering. Um, those are my, my, my two primary. I'm also on the, um, engine room website and if you're in new york i would be happy to give you a tour of the joint oh super cool i'll have to take you up on that oh definitely groovy well andy thank you so much man and i look forward to meeting you in person excellent you're on the studio thank you so much all right man cheers Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rock stars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. Also, remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with these weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my free mixing course at mixmasterbundle.com. Look for the link in the show notes. And if you want more free content from Recording Studio Rockstars, all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com slash email. Again, that's rsrockstars.com slash email to enter your name and email, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, podcast updates, and even free gear giveaways for your studio, all totally free. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a rock star. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music.